37 down, 328 to go. My name is Chris. This is at a theater near me. This is the podcast where I go to the movie theaters every single day for an entire year. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Blood and Sand. That is a 100-year-old movie, uh, that, a silent film that I saw at the Wilton Town Hall Theater in Wilton, New Hampshire. Uh, also going to give an update on the budget. It's not a very good update, as well as talk about the box office report uh, and uh, some new releases this week. So a little different, uh, a little shakeup with the old box office report this weekend, uh, as opposed to the same old, same old. We even have a new number one movie. And then finally, we'll talk about Swedish Fish. It's concessions month. All right, so let's get right into Blood and Sand. It's hard to even give a review of a movie like this. I, mean, I think I'm just going to give it a, a C. Uh, it's it's so, you know, you compare something like Blood and Sand. It's a Rudolph Valentino movie. I said it came out 100 years ago. It was number three in the box office for that entire year. People did parodies of it. It was a huge, it was a huge deal. And it was one of Valentino's biggest films. But you watch it and it really, it's hard to, it's hard to even compare it to any film from today, which is funny because you talk about like Casablanca. You know, I had Ned Snark on a couple weeks ago. We talked about that. That's 80 years old. And yeah, it doesn't feel... A quote unquote modern per se, but it certainly it feels like a, a real film. This, you know, obviously not only the silent element, but just other plot points or the you know the overacting, just the style of nineteen early nineteen twenties filmmaking is just so radically different than even nineteen early nineteen or mid nineteen forties filmmaking. The difference between nineteen twenty two and nineteen forty two to me is so much greater than nineteen forty two and today. Now, obviously, Casablanca is an unfair comp, maybe. Casablanca is a classic film. I mean, people say it's one of the best ever. And, uh, you know, what, if I just pick a random movie from 1942, it probably doesn't hold up, you know, obviously nearly as well. But even having said that, though, this doesn't even feel like a, like a movie in some element. It almost feels like a different type of art. It's a movie, uh, if you've ever seen Blood and Sand, it is available, I guess, on YouTube. A couple of different copies of copies of copies. I guess it was recently restored. And I guess that's the version that I saw. What they did was they, they took whatever prints they have. And this is, you know, talking about old nitrate prints. Uh, those are the prints like they have in Inglorious Bastards that you know, blow up and catch fire. But they also disintegrate, I guess, really easily. So there aren't too many prints of this movie left. So they had about eight or nine different prints that were in decent shape. And they were able to cobble them together to make one print that actually wasn't that bad. I... I felt the quality of this was, was pretty good, especially considering the situation being 100 years old. Uh, but it's a movie about a uh, Rudolph Valentino plays uh, Juan Gallardo, who wants to be a, uh, a matador. He becomes one of the greatest matadors in all of Spain. He gets married, and then he is tempted uh, by another woman. And he has kind of that inner struggle of whether he should uh, uh, go for the forbidden fruit or not, and you know what the repercussions are when that happens. It's an interesting movie uh but i don't know if it's interesting just because it's 100 years old and you're watching this this relic so it's hard for me to even i said even review it in some parts i just didn't even like you don't even understand some of the dialogue like uh at one point they're uh they're talking negatively about valentino's character he's off screen and once one person says oh yeah well he'll be eating iron at the end of the day and she's and uh, a woman that doesn't like him says yeah eating iron I guess that's a bad thing. I don't. I don't know what that even means. So like, you'll have things like that come up where you don't even understand the context, uh, which I mean is true to some extent if you watch stuff in the '40s. But I don't feel it's anything like that. You know, it, it also got me thinking about art as a whole as well. You know, Godfather. It's it's the 50th anniversary of Godfather this year, and it's my favorite movie. And it doesn't doesn't really feel old at all to me. Um, now, obviously, Godfather period piece, um, so that kind of kind of helps it not feel as aged, if you will. Casablanca, Godfather, these, these are probably unfair comps to anything because this is the best of the best. It's like comparing a, 
uh, an average outfielder, you know, like, you know, even above average one like Ellis Burks to Babe Ruth. I mean, it's not even a fair comparison. But for the sake of this discussion, you know, movies that come out in the 70s, obviously, are going to look a lot more modern. But even stuff in the, the 50s and 60s, it still feels like a movie. It, it, but you wonder at what point does it not feel like a movie? So how many generations from now do you have to go before even something like The Godfather just feels like a weird relic that people watch, uh, you know, a situation like this where you're almost watching it more for the experience than for the movie itself? And I, I mean, I'm guessing I won't live long enough to see that i imagine but maybe then you know if i have kids or grandkids you know at that point maybe those people would look at the godfather as like this weird relic i don't know it is kind of sad in a way to think i like, you know this at one point this is a an important movie a, a movie that was beloved by a lot of people um i guess it was even in some three stooges uh sketches and bits that were like 20 30 years later but the stooges at that point were older but this was something that was just imprinted on them and this was a movie that especially the bullfighting scenes that really were iconic at this time it, it's just it's kind of almost sad to look at the artwork that we have now or even stuff like marvel movies now like 50 100 years from now are people just going to go and just kind of like chuckle at them and just kind of like watch almost with wonder and not really enjoy what they're seeing. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know. That 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 made, made the whole experience a little bittersweet. That the fact that everything we're kind of watching now doesn't matter. Basically, every, at the end of the day, everything you're doing, everything you're listening to, everything you're watching, a hundred years from now, people just kind of kind of watch and borderline laugh at. Uh, so you know, enjoy that little look into the, how meaningless all of our lives are. Uh, but Rudy Valentino does uh, is still a name that still resonates. Uh, obviously, with people. I mean, he's still a legendary figure. You, you may never have seen a Rudolph Valentino movie, but you you know his name. He died very young. He died 1926, the age of 31. Uh, he took ill about a week before he died. He collapsed in a hotel. Uh, and I guess what he had was uh, ulcers. Uh, they, they eventually would call it Valentino's syndrome, which is uh, perforated ulcers that mimic appendicitis. Uh, and then uh, he ended up getting uh, periantitis, uh, which I guess is the inflammation of the abdomen. And then after he died, they realized he also had had sepsis as well. His lungs had also become inflamed and it all happened pretty fast. You know, you figure, you know, nine days earlier, he, in theory, was walking around and, and I don't know, fine, feeling fine, but he was up and mobile. And then, you know, eight days later, his 31 year old man is, is dead. It was a huge deal when he died in 1926. He had a giant funeral in New York. Women were throwing themselves at the, at the casket. Like he, they did like a, almost like a parade of his body down the street and women were throwing themselves at the casket. You read things and, and it almost sounds like women were not even involved with Hollywood at all before, you know, 1980. And, and that's just not not the case. Uh, yes, women definitely have had a have not had the opportunities that men have had. You know, it's still to this day, way too few female directors. But women did play a role even in early Hollywood. Uh, this was written by a woman, uh, written by a woman named June Mathis. And Mathis actually is the one that discovered Valentino. Uh, this was also edited uh, by a woman as well. This was edited by Dorothy Arzner. What's interesting here is she used stock footage. Uh, I guess stock footage wasn't used a ton back then, but she used a lot of the stock footage uh, with the bullfights that were actual bullfights in Madrid and then uh, cut them with close-ups of Valentino. I, I don't know if this, I don't know if she invented this idea of using stock footage or if she's the one that really integrated the best, but uh, by doing so, she saved Paramount a ton of money and she ended up directing films uh, in the 30s and 40s herself. I do want to talk about the Wilton Town Hall Theater, uh, which is uh, right in downtown Wilton, New Hampshire. Wilton's a very small town, uh, but it's about a half hour from Manchester. Um, so if you're in the New Hampshire or Massachusetts area, uh, I would definitely recommend checking, checking it out. They do these silent films about two times a month. 
they have other films there as well, but the silent films are interesting because they have a live musician there. And he has a, a giant keyboard there and uh, he's playing the music with the movie. And you really do feel, I guess, as close as you can feel to being in 1922 and watching this movie. Uh, I'll read the plaque here that they have outside the front of the town hall theater. The theater had, from its beginning in 1885, hosted an array of many popular entertainments had professional touring vaudeville, had minstrel shows, boxing matches, basketball games, band concerts. But 1912, silent movies were being shown here. And from the 20s on, the theater was in regular use as a movie house while continuing to host live theatrical performances. Uh, so it's pretty cool to watch a silent film in a place where silent films were actually shown. Uh, I thought that was really interesting and, and unique. It is also, uh, in 2009, it was listed in the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, when you walk in, it's when you walk in the, the 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 main floor there. It feels like a regular town hall. You feel like you could just go, you know, pay your car registration somewhere, and I think you can there. But then if you go upstairs, uh, there's a con a small concession stand there. Concession stands are the concession stand is super cheap, by the way. You uh, can get like a can of soda is like a buck fifty. Uh, the candy I got, the Swedish fish it was a small bag. It was like a buck. Uh, they have popcorn with fresh butter. Got all of that. Uh, and then they have donations. So there was a suggested donation of $10. I paid that. So I count that. And they gave me a flyer. So I count that as my ticket. Uh, but yeah, the suggested donation is $10. But if you're hard up on cash or you can't swing it, I don't think anyone would, would turn ahead if you, if, you know, if, you, if you weren't able to come up with that 10 bucks. So even if you're struggling with, with, with money, don't let that step in the way of you kind of enjoying this experience. It, it is very unique. When you walk in, um, it's a traditional, really old school theater. The seats aren't super comfortable. I will say this was one of the biggest crowds I've encountered uh, on this trip so far. So I would say that January 1st, when I saw Ghostbusters, um, that was the biggest crowd. That was probably about 25 people in the theater. I'd say about 20 were here. It was the first time I've had to share a row with somebody. Uh, decent sized crowd. People seem to enjoy the movie and to kind of enjoy the overall experience. The gentleman who plays the piano also spoke before and after the movie, gave you a little bit of intel about the movie, which which I was like. Then they even had an original preview of the film, which is pretty cool. So you got to see like a 1922 trailer, which was interesting to watch. Uh, the whole movie itself was just, it's just so bizarre. Um, you know, obviously it's silent film, so it's constantly stopping it to show you the dialogue. Uh, but then also like when it introduces a character, and I don't know if this was commonplace back then or not, it would say the char like who the character was and a little bit about them. So like, you know, the Colonel, you know, this guy is in the army, whatever. And then it says the actor's name. So John Smith, but like that really takes you out of the movie. I mean, obviously you kind of get used to reading the, the frames of the dialogue, but when it's giving you like a description of the character and then reminding you who the actor is, it's like the credits almost like never end. It's a bizarre way to do it. Now you can, you can see why it went out of style. Like you can see why they eventually went to more like a playbill type credit system as years went on. Cause it, it's not, I don't think it's particularly effective, but it is interesting that that's the way they did it back then. Uh, so yeah, Wilton Town Hall Theater. I definitely recommend checking it out. I don't know if it's a you know fun place to bring the kids or not, but it's certainly a fun place to bring the grandparents. I would say of the 20 people there, at least two thirds were very old, <laughs> elderly, elderly uh, audience, which obviously makes sense. A really interesting experience. Parking was, was pretty easy. You could park right in the street. We went and got lunch before the movie at a place called Gary's Harvest Restaurant. Nice little lunch spot, super casual. Uh, but a great way to you know have a, a little meal before you go in and you pop in and, and see the movie. Uh, so all in all, very decent afternoon uh, in Wilton, New Hampshire.
Okay, so kind of a bad news, good news situation. Let's talk against bad news. The bad news is the budget. The budget's fucked. Uh, we're in bad shape here. This month's concession month, so obviously keep getting concessions and, and kind of keep riding that train, but uh, hopefully there's no more trips coming up. The trips are just just annihilating uh, my budget. Also, no more parking in the city. Uh, definitely gonna be taking the teeth now on. So the budget is this. So far, our amount spent 1643 So $1,643. Uh, remember we want to be under 10,000. So the fact that I'm 37 days in and I've already spent 1600 bucks is pretty terrible. That's uh, uh, so, uh, that's $44 and 40 cents a day or $16,207 for the year. If it keeps up at that rate. So definitely have some work to do. Obviously March is going to be budget month. Where we do things uh, on the cheap, hopefully no more trips, you know, for weather, hopefully no more parking in the city. And then I need to focus more on Regal and AMC movies, uh, especially in March. So I uh, got some work to do there. Tighten the belt a little bit. Got to do a better job. Uh, the good news is the box office report. So we've gotten through, I think, the tough stretch. Last week, there were no new movies that came out. So that really was a kind of a disaster for me as far as trying to cobble together what movies I should see. We haven't, we only had really last month, we had two legitimate movies get wide releases. The 355 movie with Jessica Chastain uh, and the Female Spies and the Scream sequel. That was it. January was a complete wasteland. This month looks a lot better. Over the next, you know, we have the weekend that just happened and then following two weeks. So that three week period, we'll have seven movies get major wide releases. So I think we're in pretty decent sh decent shape. So those movies are, uh, this week we had Jackass and Moonfall premiere. Next week is Blacklight. That's a Liam Neeson action movie. Death on the Nile. That's the big Kenneth Branagh uh, film. Gal Gadot and uh, Army Hammer is even in it as a giant cast. And Marry Me. That's the Owen Wilson, Jennifer Lopez romantic comedy. And the following week, we have Uncharted. That's the Tom Holland, Mark Wahlberg uh, action film based on the video game. And the movie Dog with Channing Tatum. So those are seven legitimate films when you compare it to two the entire month uh, that, of last month, that's pretty good. So I'm feeling more and more confident as far as the movies go. So let's talk about uh, the box office report here. So once again, I would do it in tiers. Our tier A is a little different this week. Uh, okay, so number one is Jackass Forever. It made $23.5 million, had great reviews. It's the fifth Jackass movie that has come out. All five Jackass movies have hit number one. That's, that's the good news. The bad news for Jackass is these movies typically collapse pretty quick after the opening weekend. I mean, you have a, uh, there's a, you know, a large group of people that really love the Jackass movies. And then once you kind of tap that fan base, it does die down pretty quick. Having said that, this really good word of mouth. I think the Jackass crowd is getting a little older. I mean, now you have people in their forties that enjoy Jackass and they're not going to be able to rush out to see the movie opening weekend like they would have been 20 years ago. So I think this might have a longer shelf life than the other Jackass movies did. Plus it's just less competition. So I'm certainly not going to see that this week. Uh, but I am excited to see it. I think Jackass is pretty funny. So I'll, I'll look forward to seeing that one. Number two is Moonfall. This made $10 million. This was the uh, Roland Emmerich film. Roland Emmerich, of course, directed uh, Independence Day. Uh, and this was supposed to do a lot better than it did. It, not a successful weekend for Lionsgate. They must be pretty upset that Moonfall did so badly. But this isn't really unexpected either. Having said that, it's going to be in the box office for a while. It just came out, made $10 million. It's still in this market. Not, no, not the worst thing in the world. So not going to see that for at least a couple of weeks. Spider-Man No Way Home is in third place, $9.6 million. Once again, ideally not going to see that at all anytime soon. Okay, so tier B. So we have a couple of new entries here. Uh, Scream, uh, that's, that is now in its fourth week of release. It made 4.7 million. 
It's still in over 3,000 theaters, so I don't know if I'm in a rush to see that or not, but it, it is there. I do wonder that how much longer it's going to be in theaters, and this is the same with the number five movie, Sing 2. That made $4.1 I think Scream and Sing 2, they've both been in theaters now for a while. You know, like I said, we had two new movies come out this week. We have five more coming out the next two weeks. I think a lot of those uh, movies are going to take away theaters from Scream and Sing 2. So those are movies that I, I think I'm going to end up seeing the next couple weeks. Uh, and now we have our final tier of, I think any of these movies are up for grabs. And unfortunately though, I've seen a lot of them. The King's Men made 1.1 million. Uh, in seventh place is Redeeming Love. It made a million. Eighth place is American Underdog. The Kurt Warner movie made 800,000. Ninth place is the 355. And 10th place is a new release this week. The Wolf and the Lion. This is by Blue Fox Entertainment. I don't know much about this movie at all. I know a woman finds a wolf pup and a lost lion cub uh, in the Canadian wilderness. Uh, and then she becomes friends with them. This is similar to the other movie I saw, right? The Tiger Rising, where kids found a tiger in the woods. Now we find a wolf and a lion in the woods. I think I'm actually going to end up seeing that this week. I don't see this thing surviving very long in theaters. I, I don't know what the audience even is for it. I, this movie can't, you know, it can't be lasting too much longer. It made $675,000 this opening weekend. So, uh, yeah, Wolf and the Lion, I'll, I'll probably be seeing that in the next few days. So the rest of the list, Licorice Pizza, Ghostbusters Afterlife, West Side Story, House of Gucci, Encanto, Nightmare Alley, Parallel Mothers. And then we hit number 18 on the list, which is Belfast. I have not seen that yet. There's a good chance I may see it this week. Oscar nominations come out on Tuesday. There's some talk that Belfast would get a ton of nominations. If that's the case, it might bump up in theaters. So I don't know what to do with Belfast. I think I actually am just going to try to see it whenever I can. I just worry it's going to come and go and I'll never see it. Plus, I've already bumped it three times. In 19th place is an is a new movie, uh, The Worst Person in the World. This is a French movie that's gotten a lot of buzz. Uh, the lead actress in it could uh, get a Best Actress nomination, they say. This is going to be playing at the Portsmouth Music Hall later on in February, so I'm going to see that then. Uh, and then 20th place is Belle, which I've already seen. So a few movies on there. I think it's eight movies of the top 20 I have not seen yet, so that's pretty encouraging, and I said we have some new ones coming down the pike. So all in all, I feel encouraged with the box office report, and I obviously feel incredibly discouraged with the budget. Uh, that is something I need to work on. Okay, uh, let's wrap up the show with uh, Swedish Fish. I think Swedish Fish are awesome. This is a really good candy. Not quite as good as Sour Patch Kids. I do like them more than uh, Reese's Pieces, though. Swedish Fish uh, came to America in the late fifties. They're more pop. They're more popular in the U.S. than they are in Sweden. Uh, I guess in Sweden they are called pastel fiskar or pastel fish, and I guess typically they're more clear than they are red uh, in in Sweden or, or in the Nordic countries. That's my understanding. I guess the flavor of the Swedish Fish is based from Lingonberry. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Lingonberry, uh, which is used in a lot of Nordic countries in jams. I guess if you've gone to Ikea, sometimes they have it next to like the Swedish meatballs. They'll have Lingonberry jam or a, a side of Lingonberry. I guess they also have Lingonberry in like the Pacific Northwest. I would eat Lingonberry. I think Swedish fish are awesome. Uh, I think they're like a really good movie theater candy. For me, I could have Sour Patch Kids every day or every other day. And, and enjoy them. Swedish fish eventually I think would wear on me, but they're really good candy. They're also good cold, bizarrely. I used to bring them when I would ski back in, in uh, high school and junior high. I would, that was one I'd always kind of pack in my, my coat and snack on on the chairlift. You could do a lot worse than Swedish fish. Swedish fish are pretty good. So when I was in high school, there was this beautiful girl I went to school with and she would not eat Swedish fish. And she said it's because she was vegan. And they were made of the, like the gelatin and the Swedish fish was made of horse hooves. That is not true. 
they are not made of horse hooves, uh, but uh, she's not entirely wrong. So some Swedish fish are not vegan. So if you buy a Swedish fish, like you get at the movie theater, the one in the boxes or the one like the, if you saw on Twitter, the bag that I posted, those are vegan. Those are perfectly uh, vegan Swedish fish. If you go to the gas station and you get the ones that are like hanging on those, like those pegs, you know, like, you know, you buy like, what is it like 89 cents a bag or like two for a dollar 50, like the, the, the shitty cheap ones, you know? Uh, those are not vegan. I guess they're made with beeswax. And I don't know why, like what the difference is, why one is made with beeswax, one isn't. Um, but I guess bees, because it's beeswax is not technically vegan. So, um, you know, you go to the movie theater, sounds like those are vegan ones, but if you, if you get them like at the gas station, uh, not the case. Yeah, Swedish fish, really good. Uh, but for my, for my money, of the, top, of the four we've covered, Sour Patch Kids is the best. I'm going to put a poll up today uh, and let you guys vote. I'm kind of curious to see what you guys come, come up with. So I don't know if there's going to be a show tomorrow working on a guest, but it sounds like that might end up getting pushed to next week. So if that's the case, then I will be talking with you folks on Wednesday morning. If that's the case, I'll uh, talk about two movies I've seen and we'll talk about the Oscar nominations. So I think that'll be an interesting uh, show. And then I will then have another show the following day because I definitely have a guest lined up for that one as I head into Maine for the first time for this uh, trip. So worst case scenario, uh, over the next three days, you're getting two shows and best case scenario, you will be going three for three. Uh, but either I will talk to you folks on Tuesday or I'll talk to you folks on Wednesday. If I don't talk to you uh, on Tuesday, the Oscar nomination to Tuesday morning, check them out. Um, it should be an interesting, um, should be interesting list this year uh, before i go here I'll, we'll talk quick about spider-man and the oscar nomination so i have not seen spider-man yet obviously i'm not a big marvel movie guy having said that unless it's bad i don't have a problem with it getting a nomination remember up to 10 movies can get oscar nominations uh for best picture look whether it's for me or not spider-man uh is the is the movie of the year um in 2021 um how it overcame the odds and had a amazing box office numbers, despite the Omicron variant, COVID, everything else going on, the, the slumping uh, movie industry. With 10 nominations there, I think there is room at the table for a movie that's that popular. And I also think it's really good for the Oscars. Uh, look what happened last year. The ratings were abysmal. I mean, it was also a terrible show. I thought the production last year was the worst Oscars by far, like by far, by not even close to, there's not even comparison. I mean, the Anne Hathaway, uh, James Franco Oscars were a pretty bad production. The one last year uh, made that look like the gold standard. I mean, it was just an awful show last year. And I love the Oscars. It was terrible. Uh, you need to have a movie in there that people care about. Um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I heard Sean Fennessy on The Big Picture, which sometimes can, is a podcast that can certainly annoy me. Um, I think they can be overly positive about stuff. But Fennessy had a really good take on how Spider-Man's important to the Oscars, because if you don't have movies like that in the Oscars, people are eventually just going to tune out of the Oscars. I mean, if they haven't already. But I mean, you know, have another year where it's all these sad films that no one's seen. Yeah, if you're a big time movie geek, you'll watch. I mean, I'll watch no matter what, but... You know, there has to be some sort of appeal to a mass audience uh, on some level. And when you don't have a movie like Spider-Man or anything that people relate to or have seen or care about in there, I think you're kind of leaving a lot to be desired. You're also making it the Oscars so exclusionary. Eventually, people are going to stop giving a shit, like really stop giving a shit, like stop watching it entirely. I mean, look at the Golden Globes, like they vanished this year. And a lot of it was due to, you know, cancel culture. And a lot of it was due to the fact that the Golden Globes are a joke anyway. 
but they vanished this year and no one gave a shit. No one cares. I, I love movies. I, I, I'm, I follow these movie accounts. I talk to movie fans. I have not heard one person bitch, moan, complain, or even lament that the Golden Globes don't exist. I don't even care. No one cares. The Golden Globes probably don't need to exist uh, anymore. I mean, no, no one gives a shit. So, you know, if that's true, then why couldn't that be true about the Oscars? And I love the Oscars. The Oscars will always have, always have meaning to me. I think they're a great representation of the history of movies. Because you go look at each year. I don't really care about who wins or who loses, but certainly who gets nominated is a really good snapshot of a year in film, a year in film greatness. I, I really believe that. Uh, but I'd be kidding myself if on some level, I don't realize this shit doesn't matter to a lot of people. And it's just another thing on the long list of things that I love that people care about a lot less than they did 25 years ago. I love baseball. Baseball is in fucking trouble. They have a lockout right now. Uh, you have a aging fan base and you have quality games that are not good. It's a horrible pace. The games are boring to watch most of the time. And I love baseball. Uh, I love bookstores. Bookstores are dying left and right. I love newspapers. Newspapers aren't really relevant anymore. Like the world is moving really fast. It's changing really quickly. And the Oscars should do themselves a favor. This is a layup here. I, and I know obviously, you know, it's a large group of people that are picking these movies, but it's also people in the film industry that should care about the film industry. Uh, because like fantasy said on the big picture, eventually you're going to make it. So such a small amount of people care about the Oscars that the film studios aren't going to make pictures that matter anymore on a critical level because if winning an Oscar doesn't actually have any sort of financial reward, there's no incentive to make those movies. And if there's no incentive to make the movies, they won't make them. And then all we're left with is the Marvel and the Star Wars. There's nothing else but that. And that's not really a movie universe I want to live in. I want to live in a world where, yes, you have your tentpole movies and that's fine. Um, but you also should have some quality films as well. And I know the, the movies, studios, and, and people will come out and say, well, uh, you know, Dune got nominated. It sounds like Dune can get a nomination. That's different. I mean, Dune is a, uh, you know, ultra cerebral, um, you know, sci-fi movie that uh, is also like really cultish. That's not, that's not Spider-Man. Spider-Man is for everybody. Like, you know, everyone can go in and watch Spider-Man and enjoy at least some element of it. I think a lot of people go in to watch Dune and they would just kind of be bored or confused or not really into it. It is, it is pretty cultish. Um, Spider-Man is much more accessible. And unless you have accessible movies as part of the Oscars, you're going to block people out from enjoying and watching or caring about the Oscars. So we'll see what happens on Tuesday morning. Uh, I'll be watching uh, very intensely. And then I will have a, uh, you know, that night, Tuesday night, I'll definitely record a show and we'll talk about that uh, as well as the movies that I've seen. So Wednesday morning, you're getting a show no matter what, and you might even get one uh, tomorrow morning. Until then,